Uh, today is a, a little bittersweet for me as we go into the last lesson in this Ten Commandments series. A part of me is glad to be done with it, if I'm being honest, because pretty much every week I've had to come face to face with the fact that I've broken every one of the Ten Commandments, especially if I look at them in the broader context in which Jesus defined them. But part of me, though, has come to an even deeper understanding of just how much God loves me. And in spite of my rebellion, in spite of the fact that I can't keep his commandments, he still sent his son to live the perfect life that I couldn't live so that I could have a relationship with him. And so from that standpoint, I'm a little bummed that we're wrapping this up. And maybe as we come to the end of this series, you find yourself with some mixed emotions as well. I hope the series has been encouraging to you. I hope it's been challenging to you. And, and maybe more than anything else, I hope that this series has helped you realize that God's commandments are a blessing to us, therefore are good. Now, we didn't start this series with the expectation that we would all perfectly obey these by the time we're done with them. Uh, that's likely not going to happen. But while we did this series, we would hope that God would reveal to us areas where we need to grow, areas where we need Him to transform us, and that as we do grow in those areas, that we would fall on God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness when we break his commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments are the key to a satisfying, flourishing life because God's heart is for you. God's commandments are because He knows what's best for you and He wants you to live this, this vibrant, fulfilling, abundant life that He talks about in Scripture. And today we end with kind of a unique command, a command that really isn't focused on our actions but focused on our thoughts. So we jump into the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is all about coveting. Now, covet isn't really a word that we use very often in everyday conversation, so let's unpack that just a little bit. We covet anytime we want something that we don't have. Or we covet anytime we're unhappy with what God has given us or where God has placed us. If you look in the thesaurus for words like covet, you'll see words like crave, envy, to lust after. So this is obviously a big deal. And there's probably not a better time of the year than the Christmas season to talk about coveting. Because for all the wonderful things that the Christmas season can and does bring out in us, it definitely encourages coveting, especially in our culture. I mean, we have individuals who are getting trampled and literally stomped to death in department stores on Black Friday because of mobs of people who are rushing in to get that gift they just have to have. Millions of Americans go deep into debt every Christmas to get that gift they're going to die without. It takes them all of the next year to come out of that debt just to go right back into debt the next Christmas. In fact, I just read an article that currently 48 million Americans are still paying off debt they incurred last Christmas season. And what about some of the songs that come out during the holidays? Have you ever actually listened to the lyrics of the song, Santa Baby? <laughs> it's like the most annoying song ever. Like, can you record that and not sound like a spoiled brat? I don't think you can. Or what about some of the movies that come around every Christmas season? A Christmas Story, for example, right, follows the wintry exploits of good old Ralphie Parker as he's obsessed with getting a Red Ryder BB gun. Now, I love the Christmas Story. I, I think that movie is hilarious. I'm not saying don't watch a Christmas Story, but... If we're not careful, all this commercialism can desensitize us to the real issue of coveting. Because we figure, well, everybody else is doing it, so can it really be that big of a deal? But to God, 
Coveting is a big deal. And like the other commandments, God doesn't tell us not to covet because he's a killjoy. He tells us not to covet because he knows coveting will rob us of the kind of life that he wants us to have, that abundant, joy-filled life. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us it was actually the 10th commandment that taught him how much of a sinner he was. Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, I'll read it for you. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Paul most likely felt that as a good Jewish boy, he was obeying the first nine commandments. He probably acted the way he was supposed to act at least the majority of the time. But the tenth commandment taught him that his evil desires, even if he didn't act out on them, were a violation of God's law. The tenth commandment taught Paul that even just his thoughts of envy or ungratefulness or malice or lust were violations of God's law. And Paul was undone by the realization that he couldn't keep the tenth commandment. You can hear the frustration in his voice as he says that sin produced in me every kind of coveting. And if you and I are being honest, we probably would echo the words of the Apostle Paul. So, so with that backdrop, let's get into the actual commandment. Exodus 20, verse 17 says, You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And again, this command is unique because it deals with a thought, not with an action. I mean, how can a law prohibit what goes on in a person's head or heart? No human law can, of course, but God's law is different. Because God does know the intentions of our heart, and he does judge those too. And so what this commandment is telling us is that the desire to follow through on coveting or the other commandments we've been looking at, lying, stealing, adultery, is enough to make you guilty of breaking the commandment. Wishes without actions are still breaking the Tenth Commandment in particular. And when we recognize that just the thought, man, I sure wish I had their house. Sure wish I had his truck. Sure wish I had her husband. Just those thoughts are a violation of God's law, and so we recognize how hard this hits every one of us. The Tenth Commandment makes explicit what we've been talking about in the last four weeks of this series. And that's that God wants us to obey Him with our hearts and with our attitudes, not just with our actions. So the commandments of don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, are not just about actions, they're matters of the heart. And that's why Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Because Jesus knew that the command started in our minds and in our hearts. In the 10th commandment, God lists the items that would typically have been available to an Israelite to covet. A home, servants, a spouse, animals, etc. Now the 10th commandment isn't limited to just those things. They're just examples. And that's why it ends with, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So an Israelite could relate to this, but how might that look if it were being written to us today in our culture? How would we apply that? How might this commandment look, and what are the kind of thoughts we might have 
that would violate it. So for instance, you must not covet your neighbor's house. For us, that might sound like, man, they sure have a lot of nice stuff. How can we live in this dumpy neighborhood? Have you seen our carpet? I hate this house. Why do they have a three-car garage? I can't fit anything in this little two-car garage. Or you must not covet your neighbor's wife. That might sound like, man, she's really pretty. Why couldn't my wife age like that? I wish I'd have married someone like her. Or look at her husband. He keeps in shape. He knows how to fix things around the house. He's good with the kids. Why am I stuck with my husband? Or then their male or female servant, ox or donkey. Now, we probably don't covet our neighbor's ox and donkey today, right? So what would that look like to us? Although I do live in Wellsville, so. But. Man, my car is a piece of junk. That's not fair. Or why do I have this loser job? Or why does he get to use that fancy new snowblower and I'm breaking my back with the shovel? And then lastly, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So tell me if any of these thoughts sound familiar. I wish I could be smart like him or her. My life would be so much better if I looked like her. Why are my parents so lame? I wish I was athletic like my friends. Why is everything in life so hard for me and it looks so easy for everyone else? See, when we look at it that way, we realize that we commit this sin of coveting all the time. And these attitudes are not at all the attitudes that someone who is living an abundant, full, joyful life is going to have. They're attitudes that alienate us from God and they lead us to a life of discontentment. So I want to take a minute and I want to draw out a few observations from this commandment. I just want us to be honest before God about any areas where maybe we violate this commandment. And the first thing that I see with this is that sin starts in the heart. This commandment teaches an important truth about the nature of sin. I don't first sin when I tell a lie. I don't first sin when I curse using God's name. I don't first sin when I take something that doesn't belong to me. Now, those are all sins to be sure, but I first sin in my heart. The desire starts that, and we see this in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It tells us that temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and then drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. The Bible says that because of our fallen nature, we all have these sinful desires, and these desires are the source of our temptations. And there's some really powerful language here in the original Greek that we kind of lose out on our translation. The word translated entice it actually means to lure, but as in using a fishing lure to catch a fish, or as in baiting a trap to catch an animal. And so it's no wonder this language of dragging us away is used, because that's what happens when a fish bites the lure, right? You set the hook, and off you go. You drag the fish away. And that's what happens to us. These sinful desires set their hooks in us, and we get drug away into sinful actions. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you start to covet your neighbor's spouse. That's going to be loud. Sorry, guys. And so you start to covet your neighbor's spouse. So you start to become more critical of your own spouse. Now, they're probably not going to respond to that very well. And so now you have even more reason to covet your neighbor's spouse. Then you begin neglecting your spouse. Your spouse feels neglected so they don't show you affection. So now you have even more reason to covet your neighbor's spouse. And you start to justify in your mind why you deserve a spouse 
like your neighbor's spouse. All of a sudden, you're looking for ways to have conversations with your neighbor's spouse, and one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden, the hooks are set, and you're caught and you're drug away. And guys, let me tell you something. Sin does not practice catch and release. Sin always leads to death, emotional death, relational death, spiritual death, even sometimes physical death. You know, I think on a side note, if we would take the time to be thankful for and care for and nurture the grass on our side of the fence, the grass on the other side wouldn't be any greener. See, according to James, this all begins in our hearts and our minds. So I think we need to check our hearts and our minds regularly. I think there's some questions we should ask ourselves from time to time, just between us and the Lord. Questions like, what do I really desire in life? What do I really want the most? What do most of my goals revolve around? What do I spend most of my time thinking about? If I have people in my life who are blessed, do I get excited for them or do I feel resentment? Do I tend to focus on what I don't have or on how much God has blessed me? See, that's the issue with coveting. Coveting means that you are never happy with what you have. It's that endless desire for more, that insatiable attempt for us to get more. And it seems like Americans are just really good at that, right? I mean, I saw multiple Black Friday ads for 75-inch screen TVs. 75 inches! Do you know who had 75-inch screens when I was a kid? Drive-ins. That's it. Like nobody had a 75-inch screen. Now, if you have a 75-inch TV, please don't be offended. I am not saying it's a sin to having a 75-inch screen TV. But if you were griping and complaining about your little 55-inch set, when you were shopping, then you probably have an issue. Or if you only got that TV because your neighbors have a 75-inch set, then you may need to check your heart and see if there's something you need to deal with. There's a sign on the wall at Jimmy John's that says the gap between more and enough never closes. Have you ever noticed how much wisdom is on the wall at Jimmy John's? <laughs> it's like my number two source. I go to the Bible first and I just read the wall at Jimmy John's. <laughs> No, but seriously, though, I mean, we can all relate to that, right? How often have we all told ourselves, if I just had a little more, then I'd have enough? And then we get just a little more and we tell ourselves the same thing. And we see this all around us. It's not just us. In a recent podcast, Malcolm Gladwell sat down with the president of Stanford University. Stanford University currently has an endowment fund that's worth a little over $22 billion with a B. And so he asked the president, would you ever recommend that someone donate to another university since you already have so much money? Stanford's president said, absolutely not. We could always use another billion or two to fund this or that. Now, obviously, for most of us, it's on a smaller scale, but aren't we the same way? We think if we just had a little bit more, then we'd be set. But the reality is, when we do get more, we typically aren't happier even secular studies have shown this. A recent article in Inc. Magazine said that the, the life satisfaction experience actually decreases once you get above a certain income threshold. So I want to pause just for a second. I want you to think about and just ask yourself an honest question. How often do I feel like I have enough? How often do I feel like I have enough? If the answer is not very often, then you probably have an issue with coveting. Or here's maybe another way to look at it. How willing are you to part with what God has given you? So when you feel like God is prompting you to give to someone, how often do you follow through and do that? 
or how often do you come up with excuses on why you shouldn't? Now, obviously, we need to be good stewards with our resources. We need to be wise. I'm not saying that we give every time someone asks. But I would much rather God ask me why I was so generous and why I was so stingy. See, this is stuff we learned in Sunday school if we grew up in the church, right? It's basic stuff. Share with one another. Be ready to help someone's needs. Love your neighbor as yourself. So are you willing to part with what you have to help others, or is there always a reason why you feel like you need to focus on yourself? And most all of us know that person who is constantly grumbling about things, the person who is quick to share with everyone just how much their life stinks, who always voices their displeasure about what they don't have. And the scary question is, are you and I that person? And guys, I don't ask you that because I want you to feel guilty or because I want to put you on the spot. And trust me, I ask that knowing that there have been times in my life when I've been that person. But I ask you that for the same reason God gave us the 10th commandment. I want you to be free. I want you to be free from ungratefulness and discontentment. I want you to live this full, abundant life that God offers because that's what he came to give us. God's desire is not for us to live a life of discontentment. I can promise you that. And we're not the first believers to struggle with this. I mean, this has been going on ever since the Ten Commandments were written. And we see it going on in the early church. If we go back to the book of James, James 4, 1 through 2, he says, What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Come on, there's more. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Does that sound like any of your family reunions? (laughs) I mean, isn't it heartbreaking how many times this happens when parents pass away and the kids fight over stuff? I mean, we all know families who've been wrecked over things. This jealousy that James is talking about is when you aren't happy for others. You don't think they deserve what they have because you think you deserve it. And so you get bitter, and there's backbiting, and there's fighting, and there's arguing, and it leads to broken relationships and bitterness. And the scary thing about this passage is James isn't even really talking to biological families here. He's talking to the church. This is a warning to us and what can happen in the church when we're not content. So I think we probably all recognize that this this issue of coveting is an issue that affects us all, and it's a big deal. So if that's the case, what do we do about it? Is the answer to our problem to stop looking at other people's Instagram feeds? Is it to stop watching HGTV? That might not hurt. But the real answer is to learn two qualities from God, contentment and generosity. See, contentment is the exact opposite of coveting. Contentment is not wanting anything that you don't have. A content person knows that God is wiser than they are. A content person knows that God is good and that he can be trusted to meet their needs. They believe that God knows better than them. Contentment is such a blessing. In fact, the Bible says contentment is actually great wealth. 1 Timothy 6.6 Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. When you stop and think about it, is there a more peaceful, joyful, or even fun place to be than a life of contentment? Content people are the wealthiest people. They have the richest lives. See, one of the greatest places to be in life is to be following God and satisfied with where He has you and what He's given you, and you're pursuing Him, 
You're helping others. You're not falling for those evil desires. That, guys, I promise, is an abundant life. That is a rich life. That's a life that when you're older, you won't look back and shoulda, woulda, coulda on yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 6 helps us with the other quality that we need, and that's this quality of generosity. It says, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. You know, God commands us to be givers. But one of the reasons he does that is to free us from discontentment. See, generosity is a great way to combat this issue of coveting. So I would encourage you to be generous. If you're a Christian and you consider Alpine your church home, I'd encourage you to be generous to the church. Now, you're probably sitting there going, well, of course you would, John. You work for the church. But guys, I can honestly tell you, I'm not encouraging you to be generous to the church for the church's sake. I'm encouraging you to be generous for your sake. God is a big God. He has unlimited resources. He's going to accomplish his purposes through Alpine with or without you. But he wants to bless you by inviting you into doing what he's doing. And your financial contributions go to helping people in need right here in our community and all over the world. They help us plant more campuses. They help us tell more people about this Jesus who loves them and who died for them. And I would also encourage you to be generous during Missions Week. This is a real chance for us to have a physical impact, not only here in the community, but around the globe. And as, as Lane said, not just generous financially, but generous with your time. If you're going to be around this holiday season, I'd love to have you come help us. We're going to have a ton of fun doing it. If you've ever done Feed My Starving Children, I said last week, it's the most fun you can have with a hairnet. Like, it is a lot of fun. And we're going to make an impact all over the globe. I hope you'd come, and I hope you join us. You know, as our life becomes marked more and more by contentment and generosity, this 10th commandment actually starts to seem more attainable. Now, we're never going to obey it perfectly, this side of heaven, obviously, but we will see growth. We will see maturity in this issue of coveting as contentment and generosity become more consistent. Now, if you're here today and you're just checking out this whole Jesus thing, I understand you might be thinking, that sounds kind of naive, are you sure I can trust God? Are you sure that I can know that he'll take care of my needs even when I don't have the things society says will make me happy? Well, I think that's a valid question to ask. I think as a non-believer, that's a very fair question to ask, and my answer to you is yes, God can be trusted. So we say all the time around here that trust is earned. Trust isn't something we just give. And guys, God has earned your trust because God has kept promise after promise after promise after promise. But never more did God earn your trust than at the cross. We've talked about things that we want and things, things that we think we need today, but none of us have ever had a greater need than to have our relationship restored to a perfect and righteous and holy God. Because all of us have had our relationship broken with God because of a problem that we have, and that problem is sin. I know sin's kind of a churchy word, but it's just simply anytime we go our way instead of God's way, anytime we fall short of his perfect standard. And sin separates us from God, and the Bible teaches plainly that the wages of sin are death. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He did obey every commandment fully, not only in his actions, but in his attitude and in his heart. That is amazing. And so when we see a God who would go to that length, to meet our greatest need, that's a God you can trust to meet your other needs. That's a God that wants to give us that abundant, joyful, vibrant life that he talks about in Scripture. 
And it frees us to be content and generous and enjoy the ride. If you have questions about how to start that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we'd love to talk with you today. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to answer any questions after the service. I encourage you to do that. For those of us who've already placed our faith in Christ Jesus, I want to remind you of the promise in Ephesians 1.3. Paul writes this. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul doesn't say he's going to bless us, or one day in the future he will bless us. Paul says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. As a believer, I've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I've already been adopted into the family of God, into the family of the King. What more could I possibly want? What could this world have to offer me that even compares to that? There's nothing this world has, guys, that even comes close. And yet I get so wound up chasing pleasures and things that this world dangles in front of me that can't even compare to the riches God has already lavished on me. Don't you see how foolish that is? I mean, that would be like having a perpetual fountain of ice-cold Mountain Dew in your home. (laughs) Hang with me. You could just dip your cup in at any time and getting jealous over your neighbor's lukewarm can of Diet Coke. Or that would be like having courtside tickets to every NCAA Final Four for the rest of your life and you get bent out of shape because your neighbor has nosebleed seats to Disney on Ice. I don't know what analogy will drive the point home for you, but you see what I'm getting at, right? Don't covet lesser things. Like we ignore the feast that God has laid out on the table and we're running around for the scraps on the floor that the world tries to throw at us. I can't say it as eloquently as C.S. Lewis, so I'll just read his words. He says, no, your desires aren't the problem. The weakness of your desires are the problem. You're like a child fooling about in slums with your mud pies because you can't imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. Guys, we just need to open our eyes to the holiday at the sea that God's already laid out before us. He's already done it. When I was in high school, every Christmas season, the choir that I was involved in, we would do Christmas concerts around the community, right? We'd do them at the mall, we'd do them at churches, we'd do Temple Square every year, we'd do the Capitol building, and as part of that Christmas concert, I would recite a story called The Christmas Guest. Some of you may have heard that story. It's kind of a, a cross between a story and cowboy poetry a little bit. And I'm originally from Florida, so at the time I still had a southern accent, so I would, I would twang it up a little bit. And my buddies and I would count and see how many people were crying by the end, and that's how I knew how well I had told it. There may have even been a side bet as to how many I could make cry. I know I was a jerk in high school, I really was. So I'm not going to recite that story today, but I encourage you to Google it. It's a really good story. It's about a widower named Conrad. And Conrad has this vision that Jesus is coming to spend Christmas Day with him. So he tells his friends about it, and then the rest of the story explains how he's just all excited. He's making preparations to hang out with Jesus and to see Jesus on Christmas. Now I'll try not to give it away, but at the end of the story, there's this line where Conrad says, Dear Lord, why did you delay? What kept you from coming to call on me? For I wanted so much your face to see. And you can hear the yearning and the coveting in Conrad's voice to see Jesus. To just hang out with him, to spend time with him. And guys, my prayer for you and my prayer for me this Christmas and in the next year is if we're going to covet, man, let us covet more of Jesus. 
If we're going to long for anything, let us long for more of Him. Let us be a church that craves more of Jesus. I pray that we would feel like we never get enough of Him, that we would echo the psalmist in Psalms 42.1 who says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I thirst for you, O God, the living God. You know, guys, I say that I recognize it's so easy to get caught up in the Christmas season. Like, I'm guilty of it. I'm running 90 to nothing right now. There's so much going on, and it's so easy to get distracted. But I just think it's fair that all of us ask ourselves, do we really thirst for more of Jesus, or are we coveting the so-called refreshment that this world has to offer? Would you pray with me? God, I just confess that I get off track really easily. And God, I forget the banquet that you've already laid out before me. And I spend so much energy chasing after the scraps on the floor. God, I'm so grateful, though, that when I recognize that and when I come to you and I ask you to forgive me, you are so patient with me. (laughs) You are so forgiving. You are so merciful. Thank you, God. Thank you for that. Thank you that you've already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, that we lack nothing. You are a God who gives lavishly. You're a God who held nothing back in expressing how much you love us. I just pray that you'd remind us of that throughout this holiday season. God, I pray that that we would see a growth in these attitudes of contentment and generosity, knowing how much we have to be thankful for and how generous you have been to us. God, for anyone here today who doesn't know you, who doesn't really have a relationship with you, God, I pray that they would look to the cross and they would see that a God who would do that is a God they can trust. That you've earned their trust. And God, they would just lay it at your feet today and they would say, God, I recognize I'm a savior or a sinner. I recognize I need a savior. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for me. So God, I just pray as we leave here this week, would you give us opportunities to be generous to those around us in deed and word, maybe financially, God, however you see fit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.